Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Lara May, a clinical pharmacist specializing in functional medicine, as well as a certified yoga teacher and Reiki master. I run a truly integrative health coaching practice, encompassing functional medicine lab testing, yoga and meditation, and a sprinkling of Reiki energy medicine. Join me here on Light Body Radio to break through your health plateau and come into alignment with your natural vitality. Hello and welcome to Light Body Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lara May, and today we have with us Dr. Howard Rankin, an expert in psychology, neuroscience, and behavior change. He is a storyteller and a best-selling and award-winning author. Dr. Rankin has written 12 books in his own name, written another 12, and ghostwritten 30 others, all nonfiction. That's impressive. Howard has also published more than 30 scientific articles on addiction and behavior change, and has been a consultant to the NIH and WHO, as well as an editor of major um, psychological journals. His work in psychology and his writing has been featured in many newspapers and magazines, and he has appeared on national networks, including CNN, ABC, CBS, BBC, The View in 2020. His latest book includes, I think, therefore, I am wrong, a guide to bias, political correctness, fake news, and the future of mankind, which explores the default setting of the mind and how that can lead us astray. Power Talk, The Art of Effective Communication and Intuitive Rationality, The New Behavior Direction of AI with Grant Rainier, his latest book, Falling to Grace, The Art and Science of Redemption, was released on April 15th of last year and was featured in Psychology Today magazine in the May 2022 issue. (laughs) Howard is also a Psychology Today blogger, the creator and host of the How Not to Think podcast and science director at Intuality AI. Currently one of his books, The Journey of the All-American Redheads, is being made into a documentary with the possibility of it being made into a movie. That's exciting. He is also finishing up his first novel, Sherlock Holmes versus Artificial Intelligence, The Race to Solve a Bletchley murder mystery and is creating a presenta- presentation and book about the mind body called The Miracle Within Us. Wow, you sound like I think a prolific <laughs> author is an understatement. Welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. Do we have any time left or are we out of time? <laughs> oh, we're good. Um, so tell us about your story and. Um, there is uh, really what we're going to talk about today is how mindset is critical to health and creating our health. So um, just tell us about sort of your journey and how you came to be passionate about that. Yes, thank you. Well, I started off at the University of London Institute of Psychiatry getting uh, my master's degree and then my PhD degree. Fortunately, at that time, I was working on uh, the addiction research unit, and uh, I was able to use, you know, the, re- the the resources of the research unit to do my PhD, which in the UK at the time did not involve any courses, 
that required you to uh, conduct five publishable experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I did those on around the topic. The main uh, topic was self-control. And because it was a very behavioral era, and a lot of the leaders in behavioral science were my mentors, um, you know, took a behavioral approach. In fact, you couldn't do this experiment now, which actually involved getting inpatient alcoholics, sit down with alcohol in front of them, and ask them to try to resist. Mm. Take measures, physiological, psychological measures of their uh, self-control. Um, and it was interesting. Uh, one group also had a set of visualization exercises where they simply imagined themselves doing that as well as doing it. They're the group that improved the most. Uh, imagining themselves resisting actually helped them resist. And we know that visualization is a very powerful tool. Perhaps we can get back to that later. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of the initial first few years of my career was spent doing that. Um, I then moved, um, got a little tired of the research-centered um, career, um, moved into a clinical position at a private hospital in the UK, and then got recruited to come to uh, the United States, South Carolina, um, to help uh, a friend of mine who'd started a behavioral wellness program. Uh, and I did that for a few years. Then I, that, after that ended and I started, you know, my own practice or developed it, did more consulting, speaking, started writing, um, doing a lot of that stuff. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, was sort of a C-list uh, person, you know, occasionally appear on, TV uh, to uh, on relevant topics mm-hmm. uh, in my career. Interestingly, um, in the mid nineties, I've been in a career twenty years trying to help change people's behavior. And one day, I realized, you know what? Nobody has ever suggested to me, let alone taught, the importance of communication in that endeavor, which seems crazy if you think about mm-hmm. it. Um, and so I did a lot of research on communication and wrote a book called Power Talk, one of the books you referenced, which really looked at different ways of communicating to people. To me, that seemed absolutely massive. And that is one of the pillars that got me interested in mind-body medicine, too. Um, you know, if you tell somebody they've got three months left to live and they believe you, they're probably going to die in three months. Mm-hmm. It just so happened that subsequently I've met six people, six, who were told they were going to die, but they didn't because they refused to accept the prognosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's fair. That's been very influential. Actually, knowing cases, knowing their stories, seeing that, seeing the impact of that mindset on their health behaviors and outcomes, 
really has been very powerful for me in mm -hmm. in my understanding of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that that was that's also another very big pillar that again comes to something that's important. That pillar is not based just on an idea. It's based on experience, knowing, talking with people who've lived it, have lived through that, have embraced it, have embraced the notion of, no, that's not for me. I'm going to do whatever I can to survive, to thrive, and to actually see them do it. You get, again, Lara, for me, there's a huge difference in every level of learning communication between an idea and the experience, an idea and belief, an idea and hope. Massive difference. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting, too. I think that was probably one of the most pivotal changes in my career also was uh, becoming aware of what we maybe would even call, you know, miraculous self-healing. Um, but starting to dig into how and why and how many, how much is this really happening? And it happens more than it gets credence and credit for. And especially depending on what circles you're reading and researching and participating in. Um, I know for me, once I started um, meditating and um, reading Dr. Joe Dispenza's work, I think he's a great example of giving people the tools to really change their own life and heal themselves just by the power of meditation, which is mindset. Um, you know, so I, I definitely think I want to talk to you both about, and you, we brought, you brought them up already. The first was visualization and the second was communication. And I think it's important for us to note too, that the communication piece is self-talk but it's also what you're being told by the quote unquote experts or who you're looking to for guidance and leadership um, with your health. So, and this is one of the reasons that I include health coaching with my programs. I'm a functional medicine practitioner, health coach and life coach for a reason. That's not by accident. Um, and I do this also because of my journey and what I found helped me the most. So this is what I want to bring to those people. And I'm sure you're the same. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. In fact, I believe that the biggest, um, most effective change to a health system, probably any health system, is the incorporation of behavior change, life, health coaches. Doctors don't know anything about that. They're not trained in it. Right. They don't know how to address it. They're not trained in communication. They can't do it. Yeah. And yet we know that the vast percentage of people going to visit their physician, the underlying issue is lifestyle <laughs> and behavior change. But doctors aren't going to do that. They don't know anything about it. They don't have the time. It, it makes no sense. 
Right. And a lot of it comes down to also your personal motivation to change. So that's I lately I've been working with a diabetic type two diabetic specifically. And one of the things I ask them, are you ready and willing to change? This is going to require you change what you eat, you change your behavior, you change how you even think about what we're doing. This is not a diet. This is a lifestyle change. This is you know, a really a pivot point in your life if you want it to be. Are you ready for that? Do you want that? Um, you know, because as the practitioner, we can't do the work for them. We are we right. are not the quote unquote healers by any means. It's every right. individual is doing the work for themselves to create that change. Absolutely. And that's actually why I favor coaching over therapy. Okay. Again, therapy is the sort of medical notion that somehow the therapist, uh, like the doctor, is some sort of wizard who's got the magic potion, and all you have to do is just sit there and do nothing. That's that's not how it works. Coaching, it's hey, you got a problem? I'll help you, but you got to do the work, right? Okay. And that's yeah. mindset is is huge, um, you know, and it's it's it, it's really very important. Um, and so there's a lot of obstructions, even in therapy and for doctors, to say that almost to people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I got to do the work. What kind of doctor are you? <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. it's it's shameful that that is a mindset that is really encouraged through the system. Yeah, we've. I think it's it's built into how we train physicians pharmacists, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, the whole medical system is really trained for, it's this weird power dynamic um, of the practitioner has the power over the patient. And right. that's, again, I'll just call it unfortunate, but also like completely backwards to be polite about it. <laughs> Um, because again, we have the power to create our health. We, if we really get honest and take responsibility, whenever we're in front of a practitioner of any kind, it's because we created that situation for ourselves. Now we might feel confused, overwhelmed, powerless, all these things about how to get out of it and change it, but there are possibilities, but still that, again, that change, that choice is coming from ourselves so again, power with us, the the patient, if we all think about ourselves in some way, shape, or form as the right. patient or the client. Um, so yeah. And 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 we have to find ways, and this is where it gets challenging, but not impossible. We have to find ways of getting that patient, whatever they are, to own up, take responsibility, but also believe, believe they can do it. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I wrote a book or helped a guy write a book, really interesting guy, guy called Jeff Frankart. He was a military physical therapist or was until recently. He opened his uh, a new practice down in Florida. But when he was in the military, um, he was there particularly during the Iraq-Afghan conflicts. And he was in Landstuhl in Germany where they were getting just a ton of people in with neuromuscular injuries, spinal mm. injuries, what have you. Mm -hmm. 
And the problem was that the only option for these people was to be honorably discharged and go home and basically be on opiates the rest of their life. Mm. to suicide, actually. Mm-hmm. And so the military said, we could, can we come up with something different? And so Jeff devised this program. Um, didn't need any special equipment, just various exercises. And basically what he said to these guys is the total opposite of what conventional medicine would tell them, which would be, don't move, you know, don't move, you're going to hurt yourself. No, you got to move, move, right? You got to mm-hmm. move, That's the secret, move. And it might hurt a little bit, but nothing as much as you think it is, and so forth. And and he would tell these people, I don't want to hear any complaints. Do the exercise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the results were remarkable, absolutely remarkable. People with, you looked at their x-rays subsequently, had crushed spines, and I've spoken to some of these guys, crushed spine, do the exercise, three months later, they're back running. Six months later, jumping out of planes. Unreal, unreal. Mm -hmm. And there's one case that I remember very well. Guy comes in, he's lost a leg, and he's lost an eye. And he's sitting in the hospital bed. Jeff comes up, introduced, chats to him, then says, come on, we're going for a walk. And the guy says, uh, Doc, perhaps you hadn't noticed, I've only got one leg and uh, one eye. <laughs> and I said, of course I've noticed, come on. And the guy's really resistant. But eventually, Jeff gets him up, walks him around, sits him down on the bed. There's a brief pause, and then the guy says, so when am I going to be able to run again? That change in mindset, just as a result of Jeff's attitude, showing him it's possible even with one leg to move, even even without a prosthetic at that point, mm-hmm. changed his mindset. And he was able to run. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, sometimes we have to be hard, you know? And he tells a good story, actually. Um, prior to this, he worked on a pediatric burns unit. And one day he had to attend to a 18 month old, adorable little girl who had badly burned back. And he knew as he came up to her, she looked at him through lovely brown eyes. He knew that what he was gonna do was gonna hurt her, give her pain. And he just had to take time out and he went in to the break room where there was a nun. And she saw he was having some sort of issue. And she said, what's up? And uh, he told he told her, and she said, "Shame on you! Get yourself out of the way. You know what she needs. Go do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let this compassion stop you helping her. Right. And this notion is that we got to coddle people and make them feel okay and whatever you know, do no harm, don't do anything." Whatever actually ends up being unhelpful, I think, a lot of the time. Right. Yeah, that's the whole that whole concept of do no harm. And yet when we the different approaches that Western medicine has decided to take is does actually do harm. Again, like we can just take it back to the example of 
of diabetes. You know, we our dietary recommendations over the last 20 to 30 years have been disastrous. They are not helping. They are doing harm. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's a nice it's a nice notion. Do no harm. But, you know, what's the actual reality? And again, I think I think that's really important too. like taking responsibility as practitioners for our role. Uh, you know, like if we know that there is a path that is will be helpful, then it's our re moral responsibility to at least propose that path to the client and patient and let them decide, is that right for them? Uh, versus on the other hand, in the in the realm of oncology, when we have patients that come in with either a new or different diagnosis, and sometimes they're bullied into treatments that they don't really want for themselves. And I think that's just a travesty. So yeah, it's yeah, like, and I want to go back to what you said about somehow helping the patient or client come to their own terms of that self responsibility. And one of the ways I try to do that is say, listen, like, we're not here to judge anything. But in order to change and move forward, we have to at least acknowledge and recognize where we are now. I'm also not a big fan of dwelling on the past, but you have to recognize what got you to where you are today. And then there's, I think, a big piece of like self-forgiveness in there. Um, deciding, you know, making, again, making a choice to not judge yourself, to forgive yourself and move forward because that's really all we can do. I mean, we can stay stuck. And we can beat ourselves up and we can drink and do drugs and all right. the things that are disastrous and self-sabotaging. But yep. if we want to be productive and successful, then we have to keep moving forward. Yes, absolutely. And um, we have to accept whatever situation we are in, not mm -hmm. deny it, not play the victim, even though that might be justified. That does not help. That's the worst thing you can do. You have to take responsibility for whatever and move forward. And that is what life is about. And anything else is simply unacceptable. And what you, what you have to do, and the, the key is, you're right, self-compassion. It's not self-esteem. That's not where you are on a social scale. It's self-compassion. Mm -hmm. I'm working a lot with addicts across you know, and you know, from alcohol, drugs, porn, gambling, whatever it is, and this is a big myth, and I wrote about it recently in Psychology Today. This myth in addiction that is, oh, I've slipped, I've had a slip. Oh, now I'm back to square one. Bullshit. I was working with a guy, work with a group called Elevated Recovery that works with people addicted to porn. And recently I was on the, uh, talking with one of these guys, coaching him, and he said, oh, Dr. Rankin, you know, I slept. And I, you know, I said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you came in this program, the three months before, how often were you using? Oh, every day, 100%. Now you've been in it three months. This is the first time. So I think going from 100% to like 1.5% is pretty damn good. Right? Yeah, pretty damn good, because people do not understand that with any well-established habit, whether you're a fantastic professional athlete or a fantastic addict, the brain has created an infrastructure mm -hmm. of the 
that has to be broken down. Yeah. You can't just suddenly say, oh, I'm going to stop. That infrastructure is still driving you to that habit. It has to be broken down. And the only way you break it down is by being in tempting situations and not using. That's how you unravel that habit. And it takes time. So almost inevitably on your journey, there are going to be times when you slip. Mm -hmm. But if that means, you know, you're now using 5% instead of 70%, that's damn good. Now, I'm not encouraging you to use, but mm -hmm. I am encouraging you to put that in the right perspective. Mm -hmm. Don't beat yourself up. Give yourself self-compassion. Look at that situation and try to learn from it. What could I do better next time? That's the process. Yeah. Uh, and expecting anything else is a huge mistake. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad we went in this direction too. I've worked with several clients over the years that have struggled with a variety of addictions as well. And the thing that has allowed them to be successful in their recovery is that examination of, okay, when I have a desire, a craving, an urge, whatever you want to call it, what am I thinking? What is actually going on? What is triggering me to want to escape? You know, and when it comes down to the neuroscience, it's that dopamine hit. And like when you said structure, that is your brain has created this reward structure based on dopamine, a little serotonin, but mainly dopamine. And it, it's like you said, it's a habit, but in our brain, it just comes down to, <clears throat> excuse me, the brain wanting to quote, feel better. I'm using air quotes by giving that reward chemical. And right. so what we have to do is we have to figure out either number one, I don't need to be rewarded when a, B, or C happens, and or number two, if I'm going to reward myself, how can I reward myself in a different way that's healthy? And this is same with food. I mean, sugar is one of the most addictive substances on the planet, more even more so than cocaine and heroin, according to the studies that have been published recently. And so this, I do a lot of this with my current clients too. Oh, you know, when you're bored, you eat this, or when you're you know, a triggered emotionally in some way, shape or form. This is your default. Why? Let's talk about what you're thinking when you do that. Okay. Why are you thinking that? You know, so just taking it step by step and helping them unpack it because none of us were taught this, you no, know? No. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. So it's, I think it's, yeah, it's also unreasonable to expect people just to be able, I mean, the 12 steps are amazing. I don't want to discount their, their right. power, but again, like this whole concept of once an addict, always an addict, I don't necessarily um, agree with that tenant. And then like you said too, like, oh, I slipped. Now I'm back to square one. Really? You're discounting all that, that work and progress that you made. Why? That doesn't make any sense either. So oh, no, yeah. No, no. And so it is about you know, it is about motivation to begin with. I think that's really important. And after I did this work on communication and understanding it better you know, if somebody came to me and they said oh, i want to quit smoking my first question to them is well why the hell do you want to quit okay because you know if i say well yes of course you need to quit because of they've heard that a gazillion times mm -hmm. what i think does not matter 
what matters is what they think, right? So mm -hmm. why quit? Tell me, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's what you got to do. It's about them. It's not about me, right? Um, right? And so it is so important. And as I say, there is this big myth in the, the addiction field. But if you understand it like that, then you can identify the cues, identify the situations, come up with coping strategies for those situations. And then what happens is as you begin to break down this neuro infrastructure that gives you the dopamine, you know, you might be heading to a situation and then you suddenly become much more conscious of what's going on and able to interfere. So, you know, I've had people say, yeah, I, I was on my, I, I thought about it the other day and then I stopped and thought, why do I don't really want to do this? You know, then you start getting much more conscious control. Uh, and that's, that's when you, you're really on, you know, on the upside of the journey because you've got to that point. Um, but. Yeah. Yeah. I think even the concept of taking, you know, just taking our power back and step stepping back into our power, maybe not, not even a take back, but like I'm now making the choice to step into the driver's seat of my life instead of, you know, living as a victim and or unconscious or, you know, just reacting, reacting, reacting. I'm going to make conscious decisions and choices every day, every moment. And that I think when it's said like that, sometimes it can be like, oh, that sounds so daunting or overwhelming. But the point is, is we're building new habits. We're building new coping mechanisms. We're building new neural pathways. And so at the beginning, yes, it takes the choice. It, it requires the decision. It requires that conscious awareness. But soon, if we keep doing it, whether it's meditation, visualization, journaling, all of the things, then it becomes more automatic. Absolutely. Yeah, you're building up habits in the same way again, but yeah. now it's a beneficial to you, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, the brain does not distinguish between a good habit and a bad habit. If you keep doing whatever it is, is it going to be a habit? Um, right. But you can learn that. And, and here is something that, again, has elevated my engagement in this and appreciation of it even more. Um, you may be familiar with Dr. John Leaf's book, The Secret Language of Cells. Uh, and if you're not, um, I've, I'll try to connect you. You can have him on the podcast. Okay, yeah. I've had him twice on my podcast. His work is amazing. He summarizes all the latest information on intercellular communication. And it is mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Where trillions of cells in our body are constantly interacting and signaling to each other in the most complex ways. Um, so we think of the brain, oh, that's the ultimate... That's the final destination, but it is being fed information from trillions of cells in our body. And this communication is just remarkable. To give you one of my favorite examples, let's suppose you, you cut your finger, right? And, oh, message goes out to the 
bone marrow, we need more T cells. Okay, so the T cells are created. Then they are sent to your thymus gland in your just behind your chest, and they are tested by what are called nurse cells for two things. Can they identify toxins? One. Two, is their reaction to toxins appropriate? We don't want it to be excessive because then you end up killing good cells, right? So these new cells are sent to ranger school almost. Most of them fail. The ones that succeed are then given very specific instructions about how to navigate through the body at this point in time to get to the point of infection. Mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. Mind and this communication like this goes on all the time. Some of it is wireless. Okay, so that, that's a game-changer in, in a way because if you just think that the connections have to be or only through pathways, and oh, there's only 40,000 you know, pathways from your heart to your brain. That's one thing. But wait a minute, if they can signal wirelessly, that increases <laughs> the potential communication between any part of the body, the gut and the brain, the heart and the brain, and so forth. So that, that's amazing. And also, what we now know is some of this communication is quantum. Mm -hmm. which then takes it to a totally other level, right? So right. what is going on under our skin with our cells and our mind-body is staggering. We don't really understand how brilliant it is. And right. that, that is, I believe, our subconscious. I believe that is what is our subconscious, and that is what is you know, where those you know, emotions are stored. Uh, mm -hmm. and and memories are stored and influence our behavior. But think about this. Suppose you are feeling hopeful. Your mindset is positive. Think of all the energy you are generating in those cells and the potential that has for healing. Now, conversely, think about a negative mindset where you don't have any energy, um, very low energy, your mindset's very negative, your thoughts are negative. Think about the impact of that on your body and your mind. And then you begin to see how important mindset is. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, again, in, in the field of epigenetics as well, which is that you know, the study of the environment and how that affects our genetic makeup, meaning turning on and off genes and SNPs and all the things. I, I'm sure that goes in. I'm excited to read this book, um, mm -hmm. but, I, you know, that has to be a piece of it too. Absolutely. And we, yeah, like you said, like we know, we know this stuff now. It's not being taught in schools. Still, I mean, because um, when I first d um, 
heard of Bruce Lipton, which is considered to be one of the pioneers of epigenetics. I think I heard about him in like the early 2000s. And he had already been doing this work for 20 years, I think, at that point. And I'm thinking back, I'm like, okay, well, at that point, I was, you know, like at this point in school, why weren't these things being taught even when I got to undergrad as a biology major and then in pharmacy school, you know, like, it's just so powerful and it could really change our approach in so many ways in such a good way in Western medicine. Like that's what's so mind boggling to me is we have all this amazing research that is not being implemented into our mainstream approach. And instead it is, it exists. Thank goodness it exists. And we are starting to understand it on a deeper and deeper level. But when we go to the implementation phase, now you have to find, you know, a, it's harder to find practitioners. And I think it's becoming less and less difficult, thank goodness. But it is, and or you you have to sort of navigate through this, this cultural um, environment of do I consider, like, where am I on the spectrum? Do, am I open-minded and ready to step into what is considered the fringe by some circles and be okay with that? Or am I still worried about what other people or my family or the community will think about what I'm doing for my own treatment? Because I think this factors in a lot with big, big things like cancer or, you know, any sort of um, what would be considered terminal disease and there's unfortunately that number of diseases is growing it's not getting less and but i think that it's it cannot be said enough how powerful our mind is and now we're starting to understand that it's not just our mind like you said these cells are communicating all throughout our body we know about the mind and brain connection i'm sorry the gut brain connection and you know, the vagus nerve is a big part of that. But then they're like you said, there's also like this metaphysical, subconscious, wireless piece that's going on that we don't quite understand. We know what's happening, but we don't understand the ins and outs. And I think that's what is illustrated when we have, when we implement these practices of a daily visualization of you know, visualizing your happy end result, your happy outcome, whatever that is for you, whether it's a health something or um, something more tangible, maybe like something in your business or your career that you're wanting to manifest, maybe, you know, something within your family. Practice being that vibration every day and you will see it materialize. And usually it's not in the way that you think it's going to show up. <laughs> and I like to say it's like better than we could ever imagine. Um, but, you know, sometimes it actually brings up challenges and obstacles that I, you know, it's interesting to get into that metaphysical piece. It's like, okay, well, is the universe bringing me this so that I can learn my my true potential and how powerful I am to create this thing that seems so elusive at the moment, but I know is possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll give your listeners uh, a couple of stories if you don't, don't mind. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Realization. Um, and this is a true story. There was a soldier who was captured by the Viet Cong during the Vietnamese War, and he was held in a cage um, that was small. He couldn't even stand up in it, and he was in it 24-7. So 
obviously, if you're not going to die in that, you've got to take yourself out of it. You got to take yourself out of it. And he liked to play golf. He wasn't a particularly good golfer. Uh, for those of you who know golf, you know, a good score is, you know, low 70s. He would shoot in the mid 90s. Okay. But to escape this hell, he started imagining himself playing golf. And he had all the time to do it, of course. And so he would imagine, you know, the weather, what he was wearing, the grass, the the shot, the feel of the shot. Um, it would take him as long to imagine playing as it would actually to play. And he was held for five years. Eventually released, obviously not in great physical shape, but not dead. He goes home. After a couple of days, he says, I'd like to go play golf. He go, plays golf and shoots a 74, which is 20 shots better than he'd ever shot in his life. It's professional level. Why? Because he had been visualizing every day for five years, practice, 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 being a good golfer. That's a remarkable story until you understand there is a science behind this that visualization does activate a lot of the infrastructure that you use when you actually do something. And again, you know, there are all sorts of studies in this. Um, for example, one group were asked to simply imagine doing arm exercises for eight weeks. Uh, another group um, were told something different. The group that were imagined do arm exercises, their muscles actually grew over eight weeks. Just imagining it. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Not as much as if they've been doing it, but still. And the beautiful thing about visualization is it's real practice without actually having to be in that environment, right? Yep. And, and so I really encourage your listeners to embrace visualization. Imagine yourself living the life you want, doing the things you want, being the health status that you want, because that's invaluable practice that is breaking down old habits and allowing you to set up new habits. And if you do that with some belief and excitement, then again, these cells in your body are being activated, I believe, in the right way. Now, we don't fully understand exactly how that happens, but I've seen enough of it. I've known three cancer patients who were told they were going to die. One guy went away from traditional medicine, went to more natural medicine, completely recovered. One woman had a very, very positive mindset um totally recovered not only recovered as but run a marathon in every u.s state and canadian province wow you see these things and it helps you believe mm -hmm. yes yeah and like you said earlier our brains can't differentiate between a good habit and a bad habit it's just following essentially what we're it's it's funny because our our brain is an organ inside of our head in our body right so and then we have this consciousness that's making choices for us 
And so I think, especially for people that have not gone through, you know, very in-depth biology education, this may be sort of hard to understand the difference. And there is what they call the survival brain, that lizard brain part of our brain, our consciousness. And then there's the more um, abstract, elevated, um, the that piece, that's the piece that we don't understand as much, but that's our consciousness. That's what, when we visualize, we're telling that lizard brain, this is your new way of existence. And so eventually, if we do it enough, then, and this is just me trying to explain it <laughs> in, in layman's terms, but that the lizard brain will catch up with that high consciousness piece of our ourselves and they will come into sync. Yep. And yeah. that's when you'll start to see synchronicities, changes. Um, you'll start to notice, you'll start to notice that you're thinking differently. You're behaving differently. You're living differently. Mm-hmm. And that's the practice that you're doing with the visualization and the meditation. And I would also say, don't don't start like trying to like figure it out on your own. There are plenty of guided meditations and visualizations out there. Find one you like and just do it for at least like start with 30 days every day for 30 days. It's, yep. you know. Yep. Yeah. And um, I used to be a consultant for major weight loss support group. And what I learned there is that effective when support groups are run effectively phenomenal difference tremendous not only do you get support and accountability you get inspiration you help others um there's so much in a really good support group that makes a difference which is why some of the research shows values of that so i I do think that that is, is is really really critical um and I did. I do want to tell this one story. It's a book um, I co-wrote with this woman, Bob Morello. It's called "In God's Waiting Room." In two thousand nine, she got the H one N one virus, um, and her heart was in terrible condition, and she needed a heart transplant badly. And they put her in a coma in the hospital. When she came out of the coma two weeks later, she remembered sort of dreams that she was having and they seemed to be related to what actually was happening to her at the time so early on they spent a lot of time cardioverting her giving Mm -hmm. shots to her heart to keep her alive and she was imagining or dreaming driving down a highway looking for electricity for example and there were a number of these things one of them along the way was she gets a video that says, if you watch this video, you'll be the most beautiful woman in the world, but you'll die 24 hours later. But she watches it, apparently. <laughs> next thing she sees, she's dead in a dumpster. And the next dream is Satan comes to her and tries to do a deal with her. <laughs> and the next thing was an angelic figure says to her, um, you'll see through different eyes and your heart will be healed. Anyway, she wakes up 14 days later, and she does see through different eyes. She's had a little bit of a stroke that's affected her vision. The cardiologist comes to her and says, we need to check your heart. It's been two weeks. God knows what sort of shape it's in. They do all the imaging. The doctor comes back and says, I can't explain this. Your heart is completely healed. You have the heart of a 20-year-old. 
your heart is something that we would actually transplant into somebody else. I have no idea how that happened. And in, in looking and listening to a story, I personally believe that a lot of those dreams she had were really about resolving some life issues that were holding her back, views about herself, uh, some previous experiences um, that she had. I think she resolved them in that state, generated this positive flow of inner energy somehow, and somehow it healed her heart. Mm -hmm. um, which may sound stupid and inconceivable. I don't but, think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so either. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't think so either. It's it's an amazing, amazing story. Hey, on the edge of death, but physically, physiologically changed mm -hmm. through that experience. Yeah, I, I'm... Um, a practice practitioner of several energetic modalities and what i've seen over the years i have not ever seen anything that amazing and that is truly um miraculous but that doesn't mean that it can't happen for any of those out there listening now that is struggling or wants to create that change and one of the approaches that I've learned about through these different energy modalities is that we store our emotions in different parts of our body. And when we start to, if we want to heal, like let's just say the heart, then, you know, some of the processes that I take clients through is, you know, different uh, meditations different visualizations and even, you know, different coaching approaches to unpacking what is in that, what have you stored in that heart space. And as we start to release that, as we start to let it go, as we start to sort of, you know, there's different visualizations with that too. Like, do we want to give it back to spirit? Do we want to give it back to the person that harmed us? Whatever it is. Um, then then the healing starts to take place. And so that's more of a gradual way to go about it. And I've even seen like drastic changes more quickly than our, you know, human minds would expect to see. Oh, absolutely. But yes, you can also have that type of healing um, in a not coma induced state. But yeah, that's, I, I agree. I think you know, on that level, there's probably some some soul intervention there saying, okay, like, these are the different steps. If you really want to heal your heart, like, let's, you know, right. work through this. <laughs> and I do, I, I have something, and, and I, I, I saw something similar, but I created this concept of um, programmed persona theory. Uh, it's a bit like source coding, I think is, is called. And the notion is that we have different sides to ourselves, and that is coded in a particular way, programmed by ourselves to act in a particular way, physically, mentally, emotionally. That's who we are when we're that, when we're in that space. Mm -hmm. Somebody who has worked with dissociative disorders and, and people with literally multiple personalities and alter mm -hmm. one of the things that I found each alter ego has a very specific physical presentation, right? Mm -hmm. 
so that suggests to me, well, it's coded. That particular persona is coded in a particular way, physically, emotionally, cognitively, in every way. And so how do you break that down? Well, you break that down by changing, as you say, some of that mindset. So, you know, if you have a depressed persona, hey, getting up and moving and creating energy is going to decode that, you know? Mm -hmm. Realizing happier things is going to decode that. That that's what we're doing when we take on these, you know, various exercises to change. We're changing the coding that underpins that. Um, and this greater knowledge of how cells interact, that makes even more sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating and exciting. So tell people where they can find you or what resources you, you'd like to point people to today. Thank you. Um, my current website is um, drhowardjrankin.com. Um, I'm just about to put up a new website called beempoweredbyhoward.com. And on that site, there are a whole variety of books and, and different uh, materials that people can get. Um, so that should be up very shortly. Um, so either of those two sites, if they want to find out more about me and, and what I'm doing. Um, yeah. Okay. And I assume your books are on Amazon? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, all the books are on Amazon. And I do intend um, just finish this novel, uh, which you mentioned, Sherlock Holmes taking on artificial intelligence. Um, uh, but I do intend the next book that I create is going to be called The Miracle Within Us. Uh, which is talking about the very things that we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, actually, one being powered by Howard is up. You'll be able to get the first chapter of that. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very, for me, a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. So um, anyway, yeah, everybody go check out Howard's website and his books and um start to take that responsibility and that choice um, and, you know, see what you can create in your life. I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it. We'll see you guys in the next episode.